My name is Zoe, the co-host of Not Superwoman. I am the granddaughter of French, English and Irish immigrants now living on Boorong land. I acknowledge that we meet on the land of the Wurundjeri people of the Kula Nation, who are the traditional owners of the land in which this podcast was recorded. We pay respects to elders past and present. I recognise and respect their cultural heritage, beliefs and relationships with this land. Welcome to this week's episode of Not Super Woman. We uh, had the pleasure of sitting down with the amazing Dr. Billy Garvey. He is a developmental and behavioural paediatrician at one of Australia's biggest hospitals, children's hospitals. Um, And he's also a fellow podcaster who has his very funny but very sincere and helpful parenting podcast called Pop Culture Parenting. I just went down a rabbit hole with it actually on the way here and the episode I was listening to was about siblings and he used one of my personal favourite films purely because of Brad Pitt, Legends of the Fall. And when you watch that as a child and then you think back to it now, you just – don't realise all the issues there. All the layers. All the layers. Oh, my God. And he breaks them down and talks about all the relationships that the siblings have and how Tristan, although very attractive and kind of like the star child. Who's Brad Pitt. Brad Pitt. Yeah, Yeah, Brad. Bloody hot. Has severe mental health issues. (laughs) And as he's talking through them, I'm like, yeah, yeah. All these light bulb moments. But it is, you realise when you're listening like you are absorbing all this knowledge, but yep. you're absorbing it in such a fun way. Achievable way. Yep. So he and one of his best mates, Nick, sit down and they use iconic scenes from feature films in the like 80s and 90s and early 2000s and stuff where they um, sort of review the circumstance of what had happened. So anything from like The Terminator to Home Alone. to, um, And it's just quite amazing how, well, not only do they have great natural bands, but um, but also just how much how layered those films are, and the parenting advice is so helpful because what he does do, Dr. Billy Garvey, his sort of specialised area is mental health and wellbeing, like in children. He talks through with us a broad spectrum of anything from babies to teenagers in this episode, and how he well your childhood shapes you mentally and your mental health as you yeah well we kind of both talk about like we all talk about the the childhood journey how it's really shaped him as an adult so he's known for sort of having a bit of a mantra of like he's never met a bad child just a child in trying circumstances and he himself grew up in a really challenging circumstance single mom um who unfortunately passed away uh, at a, when he was in his early 20s um, and grew up, he got kicked out of school in year 10, I think, and he had... He, well, he on, forged his own path, essentially. Yes. Like, And he doesn't, he himself, himself doesn't really like to sort of, he's very humble and um, honest in saying, you know, I don't want it to seem like a look at me now, um, you know, 
uh, I'm a doctor sort of attitude. But I, I was think, a bit like, my children could be doctors. Yeah, but I said to, <laughs> we were saying to him like yeah. the, the thing that he I think doesn't realise is that it really affords parents that feel like they're up against it with their kids and behavioural issues or, or concerns about mental health or anxiety or diagnosis and stuff. It affords them a sense of hope of like it doesn't matter the circumstance or the environment or even traumas that they may go throughout in their childhood lifetime. But, um, there is the opportunity there to grow nurture, and change, yeah, and and sort of get a child on the right track. But that's and, at any age, I think. Mm. Like you know, we you know try to grow and change throughout our lives and keep learning, keep wanting to learn you know, wanting to better ourselves, I guess. Mm. It's, yeah, it's an interesting journey. It is, um, and, it, you know, very we're very grateful because he is very raw and vulnerable and honest with us about his growing up and experiences and what has pushed him in this trajectory of um, helping kids that really need a hand. Gosh, his knowledge, I think I was overwhelmed when I was looking into this episode because of the fact that he... Uh, there is so, it's so much. Broad. Yeah, yeah, we wanted to talk to him. And about. I loved that when he finished, we bombarded him with like every single question. <laughs> While we have you. While we have you. Uh, done a lot with multiples. <laughs> <laughs> Twins. How am I? I was like, I know, Billy, Paul. just wait a moment. <laughs> He's like, I want to leave. <laughs> I know. He was. He very graciously afforded all of our questions. But we're so excited to share this with you. We tried to pack as much in as we could and he was um, so good at trying to cover as much as he could. So we welcome Dr. Billy Garvey. Welcome to this week's episode of Not Super Woman. What a week we have in store for you guys. We are sitting with, and very privileged to be sitting with, the incredible Dr. Billy Garvey, who is a developmental and behavioural paediatrician in one of Australia's biggest children's hospitals. And we are very honoured that you are taking the time to sit down with us and, and talk life, children and all of the above. Welcome. Thanks, thanks, Beck. Thanks, Zoe. Yeah, it's really great to be with you both today. Oh, very excited because also we've both been listening to your um, incredible podcast that you have with your mate Nick, um, Pop Culture Parenting, which, guys, you've got to go out and listen to it if you if you have the it chance. It is so entertaining. Yeah, and, and very, oh, very and clever. Of course, yes, without a doubt. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, I think I put more effort into the entertaining bit than I do the science, so it's um, I'm glad to hear that. Oh, no, but you do laugh out loud as you're absorbing – you know, nuggets of goodness. Yes, Billy very much did a great job at describing it before as putting vegetables into lasagna because to give context to anyone who may be listening, um, it is uh, pop culture parenting is like uh, where you guys are reviewing scenes from famous films. Yeah, so yeah, the reason that happens is that a while back, like, you know, so the biggest influence on how we parent is how we were parented. You know, that's the thing that really guides the decisions we make about how we support our kids. But one of the other biggest reasons is the cultural references we grew up with. So I grew up watching 80s and 90s movies and having those images of like, that's what a dad's like, that's what masculinity is like and all those things. And what I do, you know, because no fictional character is going to take offence when I challenge that kind of theory or that approach. And so what I do is, yeah, try and blend the theory through the movie as a whole and then I pick a scene from it. And there's a lot of beautiful stuff in it. I often reference, you know, Terminator 2 has this great way that the kid teaches the Terminator about emotions and that's emotional development. And so 
people, you know, I think mums have an easier time getting dads to listen to a parenting podcast when they're like, it's about Remember the Titans and not shaming your kids. Yeah. Oh, I <laughs> love that movie. I think, yeah, the Remember the Titans is the so hook. Good. And I give them a little bit of like how not to shame your kids. Oh, so good. So <laughs> clever. I love it. So let's let's start from like getting a good understanding of what is a developmental behavioural paediatrician? Like what role do you play in a child's life? Yeah, so I'm a I'm a specialist kids doctor, but I don't look after kids who might be sick, like with an infection or they've hurt their arm or, you know, they've got a cough. I look after kids that are struggling with how they're feeling, their social relationships, their self-esteem, you know, maybe elements of their learning um, and how they interact with other people. You know, a lot of distressed kids, a lot of withdrawn kids, kids that are acting out, like what we're going to talk about today, the so-called bad kids. And I'm, I'm really, really privileged to be in that position. And I, I often kind of multiple times a day think, I can't believe I'm getting paid to do this because I get to meet these families and kids at like really tough times in their life and they walk into a room and trust me. Mm. I haven't really earned that. They're like really excited and hopeful that I'll help. And, you know, it's a really privileged day-to-day life to live where you get to be a part of that and then I get to go home and think about, you know, how I parent my own kids. So I've got this like amazing insight into the journey of so many kids that teach me what works and what doesn't and the families as well and all the other professionals. So, yeah, that's what I do and I a lot of people will think they're coming to me for a diagnosis or medication or things like that and it's such a tiny bit of what I do. We only ever do it if it's the right thing for the child and the family. The more powerful stuff we do is think about how do we guide this kid through the challenges they're experiencing. That's the exciting stuff that I get to do as opposed to what's the diagnosis. Billy very kindly afforded me the time to talk this episode through because there was just so many questions that I had and I was like, how do you navigate trying to, you know, um, get as much out of this episode as possible. And what we both sort of identified with when we were talking is our experiences and our journey. I'm fascinated by how you, your childhood, and how you um, got to the point of becoming a developmental and behavioural paediatrician because you very kindly shared with me, and if you don't mind sharing today, yeah. I mean, you had quite a challenging upbringing. Yeah, I mean, it's always hard because I never want to sound like, you know, I walked backwards through the snow, uphill both ways every day to school kind of thing. <laughs> to play a tiny, tiny violin tiny was violin. playing. <laughs> so I'm always nervous about sounding like that. No, the other thing is I meet kids every single day that live with more adversity than I grew up with, you mm. know, so it's a nice leveller in that way too. But, yeah, essentially the more powerful story is actually my mum's because my mum was like a – teenager that came from uh, Ireland on her own with a partner she was pregnant she landed in St Kilda he hit the road and she had a kid on her own and brought up this my older brother and then you know had uh, a separation from my dad and then was raising three boys on her own you know working three jobs really tough time and that kind of role modeling was we'll we'll probably talk about it but it was helpful in some ways and not helpful in others so Mm. I, um, yeah, I, and I grew up in, you know, this is one thing that Beck and I connected on. I grew up in Frankston mm. and like people might not know, but it's a pretty rough town and I obviously didn't know that at the time. And then, yeah, I just did a lot of risk taking and got in trouble a lot and had a lot of kind of adverse experiences and ended up getting kicked out of high school and mm. then none of the schools would take me. And so it looked like I wasn't going to get to finish high school. Neither of my parents finished high school and I was kind of on that path and then, yeah, re- I'm really fortunate that I, I didn't stay on that path. I turned off that path and now I'm really lucky. I live a really privileged life where I love my work. I've got an amazing partner. I've got two gorgeous kids. And, yeah, and that's um, 
Yeah, it's not because I tried harder than anyone else. You know, that's the I think that's the thing that we need to challenge is that oh, if you try hard, you know, I I meet a lot of kids in clinic where everyone's just saying try harder, mm. but it's just the you know their the demand on them is exceeding their capacity. And I was really lucky that I had a lot of support around me to guide mm. me through those kind of pretty turbulent waters. Mm. I will just quickly say, I know you're worried about the tiny violin, but from a parent perspective speaking to you, I was I was like, wow, you really give a great sense of hope to parents that might be concerned or worried that their, their child's losing their way or the trajectory that their child's on is not one that's going to to you know be a good one and so to hear someone who you know has managed to turn it around really does afford the parent a sense of ease and and like an opportunity to that maybe you know you there's there's a chance for change and a change of direction so that's how I see when you when you talk about that experience how I see it from yeah, a parent perspective back. no I think there's always a way back in 20 years there's always been a way back with every kid that I've ever met so it's really important that you know if you're listening we might talk about the different ages or when is it important to start thinking about this but if you've got a 17 18 year old that is lost it's there is that's not a hopeless situation and I'm really lucky yeah, this week I've met kids like that mm. and I'll get to journey with them and find the path back so yeah, yeah. but you also do that as an adult I don't know, you kind of take that forward in all ages of your life. There's always a way back. Oh, exactly. Yeah, totally. I'm hoping there's always a way back. (laughs) She's saying saying it in a way that needs some reassurance. I know. There's a way back. It's one of the worst things, isn't it? It's like that. One of the worst things that we tell kids is that once you're an adult, you'll have it all sorted out. And then I don't know about either of you. Oh, my God. I'm still like, when do I sort it all out? I know. When will that feeling come? Yeah. yeah. Quite seriously. And so when we were talking prior to this episode, we both sort of identified that our experiences growing up, albeit um, our challenging ones, and and Zoe too, um, that they have definitely attributed to our – like our mental health and whether it be we suffer anxiety or the way in which we self-regulate or those sort of things. Do you feel like those um, now being a paediatrician, looking back on your childhood, do you see, like reflect upon the challenges that you had and how it affected you growing up? Yeah, definitely. I often, you know, say to people, I think I'm looking for myself in clinic, you know, like I I think a lot of us that go into these careers, um, it's something that's therapeutic for us to try and help other people. Like this is through all of literature, you know, Catcher in the Rye is about this and I like – that was a book that was written 70 years ago about a kid who was lost and struggling and was, you know, dreaming about helping people and that's therapeutic. It's not a selfless thing. It's that this makes me feel good about myself as a person. It's a selfish thing. You know, my self-esteem is built into contributing to the community, you know mm-hmm. what I mean? And I, I do that. So I get a lot out of it and it's a real privilege. But, yeah, I was I was lost a lot during my childhood and I often laugh that I worked in childcare for six years at the place like the Frankston City Council childcare and they just had a lot of troubled kids there you know there was a lot of kids that were struggling in those communities and the most difficult kid in the six years was this like scrawny little redhead (laughs) he was like (laughs) this perfect encapsulation of karma just coming back to me that was like here's you as a kid now deal with him and it was beautiful because I learned so many lessons off that kid but I've you know it's it's just really hard and it's never I never want it to sound like a criticism of 
either of my parents, but they were just way beyond their capacity. The world is different now. We know we have a really good understanding of what's important and supportive around child development. And so we kind of can't any longer say we didn't know better. Mm. So that's what my role in advocacy is. I, you know, work three to four days a week clinically, but the rest of my time I spend in advocacy and sharing that knowledge because two-year wait list, most kids will never be seen, you know, we need to share it more broadly than that so we can get help to these kids. It, all these kids are shooting up flares and saying, I need help, and it's not – it can't fall completely on parents to catch those flares and know what to do. And, yeah, we just – from once you hit 14 years of age till you're 65, the leading cause of death in our communities is suicide. Mm-hmm. Or every one of those deaths is preventable and every one of those people shot up flares that people didn't see, didn't know what to do with, didn't recognise what was going on. And so we've got to build skills and capacity in that, the kind of – mental health advocacy stuff that's happening that's really beautiful like are you okay day and all that stuff is really helpful but there's a step beyond that of what do you do if the person says no i'm not and my parents just didn't know what to do with that they didn't know how to look after their own mental health so in a way the treatment that you're looking at that, that when you have patients coming in and you're looking at a treatment plan it really does go it sounds like it goes beyond just the child it sounds like if you're talking about it in the capacity of um, the child shooting up a flare, really, is that also a family shooting up a flare? Oh, yeah. I met a seven-year-old girl yesterday who um, came in with her mum and, yeah, their dad died. Like, you know, Becky and I both experienced this um, way too young in our lives and, you know, this little girl was just, you know, being a bit disruptive and destructive in the room and her dad had died, I think, two months ago. And her mum was just really severely scolding her and having a go at her and, like, really yelling at her and being really physical with her and everything. And this kid just wanted attention and support and love and connection and wasn't feeling it. Now, it's not – that mum's well beyond her capacity. She's dealing with her own trauma. She's lost her partner and everything. She cannot meet the needs of that child. So I'm meeting this gorgeous kid and I just want to go over and hug her and play with her and tell her she's fine and, like, you know, and just – you know, celebrate all the good stuff about her. But I've got to find, you know, mum's pathway back to mental health and support and going through grief and protect that kid through that trauma, you know, because that's a vulnerability that she's in an insecure environment and attachment setting at the moment and so is mum. So how do we as a community come back and support that entire family? So you're right, it's never the single kid. God, I mean, it's so crazy because I identify on on both levels in that I think about myself as a kid and and mum passing away and I don't think I really, like we were, our society and our community wasn't at a level where we have the knowledge that we have now and... And so I think about how, like, my anxieties or my stresses started from a young age. But then I think about it as a parent, and you were talking about Catherine the Ryan, you know, um, how you kind of drive forward to to, to sort of change, uh, to sort of make make better or make good of the bad experiences that you had growing up. And and mine has been because mum died i'm been desperate to be the perfect mum yeah and then but i'm finding myself in this catch 22 state of being hyper sensitive overwhelmed desperate to do good by my kids to a point where i give myself really bad anxiety and i struggle to sort of regulate my emotions and energy levels and all those things and it's this been this cycle and i just wonder at what point 
Um, do we go back and look at, you know, at what age, how, when do we start considering mental health in children? How do you manage those sort of, say, trauma experiences so that then those impacts and, you know, soften and ease as an adult later? Like, w- would you say that with that, if we were to example me, because I know it's hard to talk about patients and clients, but like, you know, would you say, you know, is it the parents or the fa- surrounding families really considering mental health in children and what is a proactive, productive um, approach? Like, what does that look like as in, in your role as a paediatrician? Totally. I mean, there's a whole episode in just yeah, answering that question because it's, no, it's really powerful, Beck, and it's really, you know, generous of you to share that stuff with the community that are listening. And your experience as a child will have influence by your parents and that's a valid anxiety to have. How do I make sure that I'm always here and I'm present and I parent as well as I can because I lost that figure when I was a kid? And so, yeah, that's completely valid and I have exactly the same fear. You know, my mum worked three jobs to support us and then died in her 50s when I was in my mid-20s and, you know, it just it was traumatic and devastating and I still probably struggle with components of my parenting from that and I, that's my greatest fear, probably the same as you. Like, how is this little, these two little ones now going to be okay if I'm not here? Mm. And so I try and be really present. I put so much pressure on myself, like, you know, I've – I've been doing, you know, I've studied at university about this stuff for 14 years and I still come home stressed about how do I handle this stuff and, like, I've got this beautiful community through our podcast around me that makes me think about this and reflect on it and I kind of, in thinking about how I share what, like, the question you've just asked me, I get to practice it myself. Do you know what I mean? It's Mm. this really beautiful thing that um, I'm experiencing the reality is that there is so much we can do to enrich the developmental trajectory of our kids. The most important thing is that they feel safe and secure and unconditionally loved. So what we know is that, you know, especially in the first few years, secure attachment is really important. And, you know, all through childhood really, but especially in those years, we learn how to care for ourselves by how others care for us. So what that means is that, you know, being attentive to the crying baby sitting with the toddler that's having a tantrum and responding and validating that experience, not kind of giving them a free pass to do whatever they want, but putting up boundaries and guidance and support teaches kids really early on that we're here. We can separate who you are from the behaviour. We can guide you. We'll figure it out together. It's a really important message that kids need to hear from multiple people. We know that the evidence shows us that especially in teenage years, having two non-parental adults that take a genuine interest in care for you is really protective from adversity because Mm -hmm. it shows you in the world you are valued, you are safe, you are secure. You can make mistakes and you can come back. And that what we want to try and do, whether we've got a newborn baby, a four-year-old or a 14-year-old, is make sure they feel like they have a safe harbour. Mm. And lots of kids we feel, we see in clinic, don't feel that. Parents might say, well, I tell them I love them. I sit them down in the end of the bed but we need to show them like we've got three really important roles in emotional development for kids. And one is how we respond to them and how, when they're struggling. And I remember last night I was playing with Evie, who's two playing with Lego and she like just cracked it cause she couldn't get this thing. And she just hurled a piece of Lego. Now my initial like split second thing was to say, don't do that. But then I just threw a bit of Lego and then I handed her another bit to throw and then we just sat there and threw Lego at the wall. And it's fine because it's an opportunity for me to connect with her and validate that frustration she's experiencing. Then when she settles down, she has a bit of a laugh at throwing the Lego. We build the thing again. 
And it's kind of a lesson in that of just like, I want to connect with you, validate your experience, prioritize this relationship is unshakable. And then we figure out what went wrong and come back to it. We often miss that step entirely. And we go, don't throw the Lego, that's not acceptable. And what kids hear is that my emotions aren't valid. I need to either hide them or you're not going to connect with me and we get caught in a cycle where we're competing about who's going to win. And that's the biggest challenge of parenting is like where you get into the battleground of like who's going to win in this moment at the checkout, at bedtime, at mealtime. And we shouldn't be doing that. We shouldn't be competing with our kids. I'm ashamed of my behaviour. <laughs> no, but the cool thing is we but all fail at this, back. but we can get I better. Can you can come it. back. I can rebuild. Yeah, the, bit, the most powerful, it's not a certain way of parenting. It's what we call reflective practice, where you sit in moments of calm and go, how am I going with my parenting? None of us out there, we're honest with ourselves, are like, I'm going perfect. <laughs> so what you do is you just pick what's the priority. Like what's the priority for us? It might be mealtimes. It might be getting away. It might be the relationship between siblings. We need to work on that. There's a lot of conflict. They're really struggling to share, whatever. You go, sweet, let's drop everything else. Who cares if we have takeaway? Who cares if homework happens? I need to form a secure bond between my two kids because I can see it's fragile at the moment and that's what I'm going to put all my energy into and I'm going to drop the expectation on me about everything else because the perfect parenting goal is unachievable. And like you talked about before, Beck, it just makes us feel like we're crap parents. Mm, yes, quite often. I um, I Because, I mean, I think about exactly those sort of circumstances and I wonder what the attributing factors are to the parent as in not taking that time. When you go, you know, don't do that, that's ridiculous, you know, you're being silly, whatever, is, is coming from, if I'm in that position, it's coming from a place of I've got so much to do. I am so overwhelmed. I'm so tired. And then, and then, so I, my next thought is then, is it reevaluating, evaluating your environment to work out a way in which you have the capacity or your support network so that you have the capacity to be able to stop in that moment and get down on their level? It's just, I think the getting down on their level sometimes is is really, really hard in the way in which society is structured at the moment. Oh, definitely. Like we both, you know, me and my partner work full time. Like, you know, we don't have any family around, so there's no supports. You know, we, she went into labour a week earlier than planned and we had to get the babysitter to cancel her plans so that she could cover, you know. Yeah, and yeah, so right. chaos. Like we just live in chaos. And that's the important thing. Like Winnicott decades ago described a good enough parent which says that we don't need to do this perfectly all the time, like evidence-wise, not I want to make you feel okay about it. But it's actually important as well that our kids kids see us failing at this Mm. they see us emotionally dysregulate because that's one of the other key aspects of emotional development is that we role model i also struggle in these moments i'm frustrated because i need to get all of this out of the house sometimes i just need to pick you up and strap you into the car seat other times i'm going to try and get down to your level and see how it works and connect with you but you know, the step before that is how am I feeling, how am I going, and especially mums, but one of the hardest things I do in clinic is convincing parents to prioritise their own mental health. And everyone's like, oh, yeah, but I'm, my kid matters more. And it's no, because you've got to remember that what we are role modelling is, you know, how important this stuff is to ourselves. And self-esteem is built in a way through that. And you are showing kids I have self-worth because I go for a run, I catch up with my friends, you know, sometimes I can't be 100% present with you because I've got other stuff I need to look after for myself. Because if you're just selfless, then you might be teaching your child they should be like that as well. Mm. And it's really important you don't do that. And then there's the whole piece of, 
you know, the biggest challenge in parenting is when our demand, the demand upon us exceeds our capacity. And if we're not looking after our own mental health, we've got really low capacity and mm. we can't handle, you know, all of the stuff that gets thrown at us, which is, yeah, I feel like that every single day. Mm. Like I, every single day my two-year-old comes and wants to play with me right as I'm about to shoot out the house and go to the gym and go to clinic. And I just feel complete, I feel literally torn. I'm mm. like, I'm going to meet all these kids and I'm going to tell parents how important it is to connect with and spend time with your kids and my daughter is now stopped asking me if I play in the mornings because she knows I'm going mm. and she's just stopped asking and I'm like, that just tears mm. me apart. I'm mm. like every morning I'm like, what am I doing? Yeah, you know? such a Bloody hell. I, I know. feel like they know though, they sense it. <laughs> 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 Whenever I'm like having a panic, they're like, mummy, can we have an intense conversation? I'm like, I know. <laughs> yeah, well, that's the hard thing, especially teenagers, because teenagers' brains shift, so they become really cognitively active in the evening. So as we're winding down, when they're I'm coming like up cogn- to us. Co- I can't even say the word cognitively yeah. inactive. <laughs> yeah, exactly. We're winding down, and they're like, cool, I want to tell you about you know how I feel about the world or the bullying I'm experiencing in my relationships. And you're like, I, I need to be asleep two hours ago. <laughs> I'm like, fine, Charlie. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Go find dad. I um, It's just funny going back to what you were saying before about the self-care because I do feel like there's this common theme at the moment where it's becoming a part of the conversation day to day, but there is still this lack of um, willingness to really prioritise it. So if we were to talk about the gravity of the impact if you don't consider these things, like you told me a stat – um, when we were chatting before this interview about mel- mental illness in children. I mean, I, I'm taking it to the extreme here, but um, it was quite a frightening statistic. Yeah, so, yeah, the, I think the one you're talking about is that 50% of adult mental illness starts before we're 14, which is terrifying. Um, there's hope in that as well, though, because, you know, we can turn – it's much easier to turn kids around than it is adults. It's not impossible, but, you know, there's just so much more hope. We have so much more input into the developmental trajectories of kids. Once you've kind of become an adult, those dysfunctional coping mechanisms are really ingrained. So what we want to do is recognise – validate those experiences and emotions kids are struggling with but then help them find healthier ways to process them and deal with them and you can do that much more easily than you can with a kid uh, than you can with an adult the hard bit is that yeah what we know is that about in australia at the moment in a 12-month period one in seven or 14 percent of kids will have a mental illness um, and that's from four to 17 years of age and everyone thinks it's just teenagers mm. There's kids that have a clinical mental illness that are in preschool. Like we see a lot of them. We see heaps of preps that are about to get kicked out of school because of how bad their behaviour is. And there are no bad kids. Like I've never met a bad kid. There's always a reason. And we just need to skill up the people who have the trusted relationships, such as the family members, teachers, GPs, maternal child health nurses. They have a skill that I can never develop, which is to really build a trusting bond and journey with those families. I get to see someone every couple of months for 30 minutes, you know, these educators live their lives with these kids. They are the, one of the most protective professionals that exist within them. So how do they know when a kid is struggling and what to do and how to catch them and how to bring them back? Because if they don't figure that out, that kid will go on and likely have mental illnesses as an adult and be disengaged. And it's also not like it's not a thing that we owe this to the kid because we've had a luckier life or something like that. It's our community will be stronger if we bring out the best in everyone. Mm. We all know those kids that have gone off the rails. I grew up with them. You know, like all these, all of my mates 
you know, went on and had a lot of difficulties with drug use, disconnected from their families. Like, you know, it was only because I got kicked out of school that really I had a different trajectory. So how do we catch all those kids? And we've just got to be really thoughtful and purposeful in how we do it. And I'm, I'm really lucky that I get to go out in the community, leave my consulting room with this long wait list and say, how do we do this together in the community with the people, the families and the professionals that support kids in their daily lives? So there's heaps of hope, you know, and I, yeah, I get to do that through the whole life course of kids. It's just an amazing thing. Um, but it's, it's not a magical thing, you know what I mean? I know. Either. I'm literally sitting here as you're talking. I'm like, so how, how do we do it? How do we do it? <laughs> like, what's yeah. the answer? Just give I me know. the quick fix. So, do, do, yeah, do, what is the quality of life like for our kids? It's really important that we look at function, not do you have ADHD or not? Do you have autism? You know, what is the quality of our life? Do they have success? Do they have relationships where they get to feel good about themselves? They get to build their social skills. So much of life is not about how smart you are, how good you are at maths, how high your level of reading is. It is what are your social and communication skills. And that is a really purposeful thing that we're not very good at teaching kids. Like we watch kids learn how to ride a bike and we go, cool. You know, we don't go, well, you're 10, so bad luck if you can't ride, that's it, you're done. We do that heaps with kids about social and emotional development. And I see heaps of kids that are 10 years old, they've got no mates, they're just dysfunctional and aggressive and everything. And everyone's like, why haven't you figured this out? We need to medicate this kid. The kid who can't ride a bike, we go back and we go, cool, you need training wheels, you need me to hold on while you're riding, you need to be on a really flat surface and you need me there right on top of you, supporting you, being careful if you fall, all that stuff. Social emotional development is exactly the same. One of the biggest challenges we have is that we go, a kid is that old, he should have figured it out by now. You put a kid in a room with a violin for 10 years, if no one shows them how to play it, they'll get no better at it and social and emotional development is exactly the same. You need to teach those skills in kids. It protects them and it brings them back when they've failed at it. So does it does it really, uh, like, uh, you know, does that really fall on the parent and does the parent need to be proactively engaged on that level to for this to happen? It doesn't fall on the parent and a lot of parents will feel like that, but, you know, reach out to the people around you and say, hey, I'm worried my kid doesn't have any deep friendships. I'm worried my kid doesn't play well with others. I'm worried my kid feels like he's not valued enough. He doesn't think he's got good, good things going on for him. I ask two questions. Every time I meet a family in clinic, I say, what's the most important thing for you to get out of today? The other two questions that I always ask every single kid I meet is, what do you enjoy? And they have to tell me specific things. And then I say, what are you good at? And they're two completely different questions. And I've had a couple of kids this week that couldn't answer those questions. They also couldn't tell me a single friend they have. You know, they couldn't tell me something oh, good about their life. Heartbreaking. Yeah, heartbreaking. But how great that we get to catch that kid and there'll be so many out there that we'll never meet that have just been told they're bad kids or no one likes them or it's all your fault and kids become who they hear they are, you know, and that's I I heard about all the bad stuff I was doing to get kicked out and all that stuff but I always heard... There was a pathway back. I had the potential, and people were going to support me unconditionally. And so that's was what we need to your do. mum telling you that as a child? Like, where yeah, did you my, have that positive reinforcement yeah, from coming a, from? From a few people, like, to be honest. Yeah, my mum was like that. You know, my mum was really, really strict on me, like, really strict. And, um, you know, she just didn't know any better. She missed a whole window of parenting. So she didn't have parents for a section of her childhood because she was gone and she was a parent herself. So, you know, she was just trying her best and, you know, she was she was like we talk about the difference between an authoritarian and authoritative parenting and what the difference is the authoritarian is like I am the law, 
you know, and this is what a lot of parents are like, I need to come down harder on these kids, you know, they're playing up too much, they're not listening. But authoritative, what that means is I'm still in charge, I'm still the primary person and decision maker, but I'm going to explain it to you why, I'm going to find your reason of why you're going to put effort into this, I'm going to decide together what the plan is. You're really fighting with your brother, you're getting in trouble at school, whatever, what's going on there, we need to find the hook, why would you want to succeed in this environment and how do we find the pathway back together with everyone and parents shouldn't feel alone, like educators are really interested in this stuff, they just haven't been skilled up specifically in it and even in just like, you know, conflict, there are so many different reasons why a child will have conflict with their peers and educators. And sometimes it's because they don't feel safe, they don't feel valued, they don't feel equal. And so they act out because they get predictability. You know, I sitting in this room, I think everyone is more capable than me of doing this task. I've missed the instruction. I don't know how to do that bit of maths. I'm not good enough at reading. I'll act out. I'll be the class clown. I'll throw something the stress comes out of my mind, out of my body, and I get predictability. I don't care that I got in trouble. That bit went away. It's like an instant gratification kind of process, I guess, where they're getting rid of that feeling instantly but by doing an action that displays to the people around them that they're, you know, in in old school terms, you know, being a bad kid, but they're actually... Yeah, definitely. Better. Cry for help. Mm, yeah, yeah, it's a cry for help and it's like it's kids showing us that they are missing a skill if they're not succeeding in that. And often what we do, going back to the kind of bike thing, we need to go just like us, you know, like you were talking about this before, Beck. in the moment I'm so stressed and overwhelmed that I can't connect with my kid. Mm. And it's because no one taught us how to do that. No one taught us how to self-regulate. That is a skill. That's not some magic thing that you're either born with or you're not. Mm. It's the same as everything, like playing the violin. You just go, cool, I'm needing to play the violin 10 times a day. I should probably start practicing and learn how to actually play a violin. I should Mm. probably learn how to self-regulate. And there is a way to do that. And it's really important that we do that before we go in and try and correct any behaviours with kids because if we go straight to the correction – we're likely to fail and we'll miss this opportunity to do it even better than that anyway. Yeah, wow. I mean, it's quite amazing because I, I was lucky enough to be able to get um, one of my boys to see a counsellor and um, on self-regulation. And to be honest, if I'm being completely raw and vulnerable, it's probably coming from the fact that, you know, we don't self-regulate very well at home, especially when we're overwhelmed and stressed. And now I'm realising how integral it is because when I fly off the handle, that's what I'm showing them to do. And now I'm trying to teach them not to do it, but I still need to learn how to do it myself. (laughs) And it was funny when I was sitting with the counsellor and she was like, she actually drew him a um, thermostat. And she had um, blue going into yellow, going into red, and she was showing him don't go to red. <laughs> and um, and she was like, if you start hitting, if you start hitting, uh, going from blue and start hitting, hitting yellow, this is where we can do deep breaths, and this is where we can, and. Um, I was sitting there like, this is gold. I need to start doing yeah, this. Yeah. yeah, I was just thinking that then. I was like, where do we get do classes in self-regulating? <laughs> well, totally, yeah. And that's there's two things in that that your therapist is beautifully melding together. There's one which is what occupational therapists usually talk about is about zones of regulation and that's about recognising what are the feelings I have in my body that make me that show me that I'm getting to red before I get to red and how do I do stuff that's helpful, deep breathing or whatever. 
And there's another beautiful thing, which is, you know, you talked about this before, and this is Tina Bryson and Dad Siegel, who I'm really lucky to have spent some time with. They wrote this in The Whole Brain Child about flipping your lid. I don't know if you've heard that before, but they came up with this concept. I know. (laughs) I know. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) So it's amazing. But it talks to your point about like putting this pressure on yourself at home that when you're completely stressed out, you've got to have some superhuman ability to calm yourself instantaneously. Mm. And that's the last place you develop those skills. The last place the kid gets good at socialising with his peers if he's not good at it is on the playground with no support. But everyone goes, how come you're not figuring it out on the playground? And it's often joke about this, but it's, you know, the classroom is really rigid, heaps of support, you know, exactly what's expected of you, someone right on top of you, and then the bell goes and it's Lord of the Flies. <laughs> you know? And a lot of kids just fail in that because no one's taught them how to survive in that wilderness. It's yeah. brutal. Yeah. Yes. yeah, I remember you how brutal re- it was. You still remember, like, it's ingrained in you. Yes. yes. Totally. And it's, yeah, the hard thing is often we go in when everything's fallen apart and that's what your counsellor is working on is like how do you get there before it's all fallen apart? And Mm. that's a really important part of self-regulation and co-regulation and supporting emotional development and all that stuff. Is Because that is that really the primary position of if you're worried about your child's mental health, is is sort of the first step is looking at their self-regulation? Yeah, the first thing is trying to be a little bit kind of in is what's going on, like what's going on underneath this. Because often we can look at the behaviour and go, I need to stop the behaviour. And sometimes even if that works, we've missed the therapeutic process of like dealing with the actual cause. The other thing is if parents shouldn't feel like I need to figure this out, and that's what we, we know there's lots of parents that will hold a lot longer than they should have because they're like, if I ask for help, it might be because I'm not a good parent. Mm. And it's, you know, that's the, I, you know, I've got a very easy temperament settled two-year-old and I still struggle with it, but she makes me look like a good parent. Do you know what I mean? Mm. Whereas we used to think like, oh, kids with ADHD, they just need stricter parenting, you know. Kids with ADHD are gorgeous. They're my favourite kids to see, but they're really hard to parent, you know what I mean? Because they're little hurricanes that are disorganised, they struggle with, you know. It's a different way of seeing, like we don't view things the same way. Yeah, exactly. I they don't know, see so the world differently. In, yeah. yeah, totally. Yeah, that goes back to the environmental stuff. Like what is the experience this kid is having in this environment? And I remember talking. And, the, and sometimes we will never understand it because we totally. don't have ADHD. Yeah, exactly. And it's, yeah, ADHD is a really interesting one, Zoe, because, you know, we sit kids into an environment and say, focus on this for 90 minutes. And they're just really distractible. Now, that's really important in creativity, thinking about things differently, being distractible and all that stuff. It's really hard in the rigid environment of a classroom to be like, I don't care about algebra. You want me to focus on it for 90 minutes Mm. with like birds flying past the window, all these other exciting thoughts going through my head. Like it's, yeah, it's really hard. So yeah, you're, you're, it's a really beautiful thing, Zoe, of like we might never understand their experience but regardless we'll support them. You know? Yeah, and it's knowing how to do that. Mm. And you're not born knowing how to do that. No. Well, like, as a, like I would have no idea. No. Yes. But you learn. I do remember someone saying to me once, and it was a professional, and saying, you know, you accept them for who they are and stop trying to make them feel bad about who they're not. And Mm. um, that is – I find it difficult to navigate that, though, because then I'm sort of not quite sure where my parenting starts and stops. Totally. You just reminded me of these amazing educators that I spoke with a few months ago, and they said one of the hardest things about being in a school is that – 
we are trying to support and uplift who the kids are and sometimes that is a challenge to who their parents want them to be. You know, and if you think deeply about that, that must be really difficult, mustn't it, that you've got this gorgeous kid who is shy and quirky or whatever, but there's a parent that's like, I want you to be tougher. I want you to be, you know, more resilient. I want you to be whatever. And we're like, yeah, but that's that's not this kid's strengths. And like, what is the vulnerability in that? And where the actual families are pushing back against this kind of idea about therapy needs to come in place to stop doing certain things. And like classic is neurodiversity and stimming. Like we're coming in and saying, you can't do this, you can't do that. And it's like, that's how that kid calms down. Mm. Like what's the problem with this? Is that about us or mm. is it about them? And that's the challenge is that how do you look at the kid in front of you and think how do I support, you know, you and the strengths that you have in yourself and all those things. But, yeah, it's really hard, Beck. Like I, I struggle with this. I look at Evie and, I, you know, she's so phenomenal at sharing but she just lets every kid step in front of her on the slide and I'm just like, oh, man, I wish you would sometimes step in front and go, hey, it's my turn. So then how would you teach a child to be more, I guess, assertive? Is that, is that what you want to teach there? So 100%. I do it gently. You know, I do it gently <laughs> and I don't, I don't kind of go but what I do is I, I role model it for her and I provide the level of support that she requires to succeed seat at it i don't give her like she's two so i wouldn't do this but for any age this is not the right thing i don't give her a pep talk and go 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 in tomorrow and stick up for yourself and the kid's like completely overwhelmed already and then he's like i've also got the pressure of a parent saying go in and overcome this massive hurdle that you're really struggling with you don't feel skilled up about so that's the challenge of parenting is that how do we give and your point is right beck like often we can't how do we give the level of support required to succeed at whatever specific thing we're working on and then reduce our support and watch them closely and make sure they keep succeeding. And if we've backed out too quickly, we go back in and we're all working on things together. It's the challenge of like I'm trying to sort out him listening to me more or him behaving or whatever and it's like it's never the kid in isolation and isolating the kid out puts them at great risk of feeling like there's just something wrong with them. Mm. So I, th- I think about the mental illness factor and the stat statistic that you said before and I think about how you were saying you know really from the age of um four if I heard correctly um early you said from the age of four is something you need to consider like what are signs that is it is it a parent's instinct or is there signs and symptoms as a pediatrician that you see okay this kid's struggling or that you would, you know, highlight and say, all right, if they're, you know, acting out or doing this or withdrawn or like even simple things like biting nails or, you know, like are they signs that a kid's got a bit of anxiety or? Yeah, it's it's such a good point. So, yes, let's it's even earlier back. Like we know that from – actually before, before kids are born, it's really important that we are working on this and it doesn't mean we've missed it if kids are older than that but – we should think about this stuff. We know that through pregnancy it's really important that, you know, mums are supported and kind of, you know, feeling comfortable and not, you know, too much stress on them. And then when the baby comes into the world, like 20 to 30% of new parents have postnatal depression. That's huge. Mm. That is devastating for little bums if no one supports them in it because what we were talking about before, that kind of connection and attachment, that responsiveness is really important. Kids need to feel connected. Their brains are looking to wire and fire by you look at me, you respond to me. When I smile, you smile. When I cry, you support mm. me. When I look away from you, you you know, you know, think that's okay. 
you're not getting upset, you're not getting distressed, you're not getting overwhelmed. That's really hard to do for so many parents, especially with bubs that are crying a lot and really won't sleep and it's you know challenging for us. But it, that's how early it starts. It starts from those first few weeks of picking up a kid and interacting with them and holding them and skin to skin and all that stuff. That builds how they feel about the world for their entire life. Mm. You know, that protects them and shows them they're safe. And then the kind of toddler who's at childcare, who's, you know, fighting with everyone and really destructive, we watch them and go, what's the skill you're missing? Okay, you don't understand. You're terrifying me here. Yeah, well, I'm no, like, no, but oh this, is a good, this is a good example. What's the skill you're missing? And I'll sometimes hear the three-year-old doesn't think about other people's feelings. No three-year-old has any capacity to think about anyone else's feelings. The developmental theorists figured this out decades ago. They are egocentric. So one why doesn't the, anyone say this? Well, people should because Maybe one they- of my favourite <laughs> colleagues says that if three-year-olds are adults, they'd all be in jail because they're like, <laughs> do you know what I mean? They're just like, the world is for me. There should be no consequences. And the problem is there's lots of little kids. Have you been hanging out with my used, children? Yeah, I used to feel like I was literally like just t- like I was – I was just a broken woman during those that one but year. But the expectation's <laughs> too high. Do you know what I mean? If we're expecting you as a parent to be able to redirect a three-year-old to have empathy, we are kidding ourselves. Mm. Do you I know feel like I mean? that was honestly the year I went back to work pretty much full-time. Because <laughs> yeah, I was, it was like, just so overwhelmed. that is tough. Yeah, it's so they're tough. they're extreme. Yeah, yeah. And that's that they're going through a developmental world. And it's really important this goes to. This is a different element that we haven't really touched on. The three-year-old has to have boundaries. That's how they feel safe in the world. If they, I've met three and four-year-olds that are really traumatised that there are no boundaries and they walk around terrified and aggressive and hostile because they don't know how to navigate the world. You know? yes. And so we have to have boundaries up for them. We just have to do it from a nurturing, responsive, you know, predictable um, perspective. But, yeah, it's really important. And, and this goes on. Like this is the, the teenager. It is a normal developmental thing to take risks. Do you know what I mean? And we can probably all think about this as when we were teenagers, I took heaps of risks. You know what I mean? And anyone who said, can't take risks, you've got to stop it, was going to miss that opportunity for me to navigate through risk. I just always, one thing my mum was amazing at is she was like, just come and tell me whatever's happened. Mm. You know, and she'd yes. be upset with me and strict with me and all those things. But I, I felt I was safe to come in and say that. And there'd be consequences and all that stuff. So but, is that like an open door policy, say? Like yeah, that similar kind of concept, like you never want them to feel like they can't come to you. Mm. Yeah, you've got, you've got to create that safety. Because, yeah, even as good as my mum was at it, I was like – had this period of like severe bullying and it's still like decades you later. You never forget it. Yeah, you never forget it. There's this stupid thing of like, you know, sticks and stones will break my bones but words will never hurt me or whatever it is. I've been beaten up a few times in my days I recovered from that. It's like it was still awful, don't get me wrong. But the bullying that I experienced will never leave me. No. You know, like never leave me. I've seen a number of therapists and all that stuff, but my mum didn't know it was happening. Mm. Do you know what I mean? It was back in the days of landline phones and these people were calling up and like hassling me and I'd disconnect the phone. My mum would find it disconnected and plug it back in. They'd call again and like tell my mum, we just want to speak to Billy. And then like just all this awful threatening stuff. And I, that was decades ago. And I, you know, it's still there in me. It's still this vulnerability, challenges my self-esteem, worries that I'm not good enough, that I deserved it, all those things. And so what we've got to make sure is that we create safe harbours and passages for our kids to come to us with that stuff and say, that is not acceptable. Like bullying 
is really prominent in a lot of our communities and it's not acceptable. No kid should hold that, no parent should hold that. And there are ways to deal with it and approach it as a community level. There is not an expectation that a kid should be resilient enough to tolerate it. I think about um, from what you're saying and if we were to talk about it uh, in regards to, say, tweens and teens and so on, even like, you know, um, 10-year-olds and stuff like that, I think about how... um, Everything that you're saying, just the beacon of light that sticks out is safeness. Like if you are able to create a safe and secure relationship and attachment, you will be able to navigate the, you know, the hurdles and challenges. Because if I was to reflect on my own life and, you know, I've known Zoe since year seven, so maybe... I know your entire life. (laughs) Yeah, and well, (laughs) vice versa. But like, you know, we, I... um, feel like the reason I mean you know I I, uh, mum passed away and then I had to dad was living on the peninsula and I was ended up living with my teen sisters and really that sort of level of um, sort of freedom and flexibility as well as the trauma of mum passing could have pushed me in a trajectory that wasn't great Mm. I think what kept me on good stead you know for the most part I had my moments but um, is that um, I had a really safe, secure space with my grandparents, my sisters and my dad. Um, For example, my dad, no matter what time and no matter how drunk I was as an 18-year-old, my dad would come pick me up. That was very handy. (laughs) (laughs) Zoe was with me. Love you, Terry. (laughs) (laughs) But then I think about like how, you know, Zoe, not to, you know, shed light too much light on you, but, you know, with Mm. school and leaving school in year 10, I think, you know, if I was to reflect your having your mum and dad have your back and no matter what no, no matter what happened, having like that safe space of, you know, not critical well, and judgment. I think routine and structure. Yes. Like yeah. I, I actually like boundaries. I love routine. Yeah. I, I thrive in a kind of structured environment. If you, yeah. Yeah, if you're it's, able, it feels like if you're able to create a safe relationship and connection and boundaries but and consequences, but also the consequences to be safe. Like not not something that the child doesn't want to come and tell and share and be open with you because then if the consequences are so severe, the, the cost of lying is a better option. Yeah. Um, that, I mean, that's what I sort of take away from, from yeah. you know, I- what you were saying on a big picture, I guess. Totally. Well, it's all about, yeah, we'll just – and it sounds like Zoe had this, you know, just like we'll figure it out together. Yes. Do you know what I mean? I don't know what the answer is, but we'll figure it out together. And mum and dad never got angry. It was more – we're really disappointed. Yeah, yeah. And I'm like, no. <laughs> that used but to like break me. I was like, no, don't be disappointed. But then I was also like, great. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's, yeah. And you, you would have been doing normal well, testing just, boundaries. 100%. And the hardest thing is that, you know, the more a boundary moves, the more frequently a kid will test it <laughs> because they're like, you know, takes costs nothing to test a boundary. And the other bit is, you know, as kids get older, we move from like the phase that I'm in, I am a manager of my two-year-old. Like I manage every single bit of them and I fail at heaps of it. I'm meant to be some like sleep expert. Most nights I've got a two-year-old sleeping on top of me. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? And so I tell that story because the difference between the so-called expert and the reality. But as she gets older, what I want to move from is a manager to a consultant. And that's what we're talking about. As a teenager, I want her to come to me for support. I don't want to be on top of her. 
I want her to feel safe and to come to God, me. God, that's and a good analogy. Yeah, it's, I've taken it off something else. I can't remember what. But um, <laughs> yeah, but yeah, it's a, it's a really important perspective shift from like how do I gently become a consultant and give freedom and opportunity to explore the world. And this, yeah, I mean the last analogy that I'll give, but. Kids do, you know, you take a kid to a playground and you watch them and it's a new playground, they've never been there before and they're really young, they'll stick on you, won't they? And then they'll slowly explore and they'll drag you over and say, I want to go on the slide, but you want to go there. The older they get, the more frequently they go there, they feel safer there and they will explore on their own. Once the attachment is challenged and the security is challenged because they can't see you, they turn around, they can't see you, you're talking to someone else or whatever, they come back in. That's normal developmental behaviour. Now, as kids get older, we want them to learn to come back in when they're feeling unsafe, they're feeling unsure, and they come back in and check with us, and then they explore. And, you know, I'm hoping that I get to be a part of my kids. Like, what, what do we actually want? We want to be a part of their lives when they're adults, don't we? we want them yeah, to but feel we don't like want them living choice. at home. No, of course not. But you want, you want to still celebrate them, don't you? And be a part oh, I want of their to life. spend time. Like, I love spending time with mum and dad. Yeah, exactly. So your your mum and dad have built that. But that they don't feel. want me living with them. <laughs> Zoe would gladly go would, home. <laughs> Genuinely would leave and go. I'd be yeah. like, bye, Charlie. But that's what we're aiming for, isn't it? But we actually, what we need to realise is we build that now. Your parents didn't build that because of some chat you had the day you left home. Do you know what I mean? They yeah. went, we want you to know we're, we're here for you. They showed you that through years and years and years of being responsive and supporting. And that's the trick is that we're often thinking, oh, I'll just have that conversation one day and that, that'll show them. Like we show kids, we don't tell them. Um, I'm backtracking for one moment, but I do want to sort of reflect upon because I'm thinking about the, the people that might be listening that feel maybe slightly alarmed or concerned because we talked about how safe and secure bond and connection from, from even birth. If you're feeling like you have you know, it, whether it be through postnatal depression and, and, and an overwhelm or an environmental circumstance where you haven't been able to build that, I, I'm sure there's opportunity and I'm assuming there's opportunity to now to turn that around. Mm. Um, and is it, is it literally to, you know, to, to start from, you know, from this point forward and, and, you know, try your best to sort of get down on their level and have those more um, neutral conversations when, you know, when things are heightened. Like what's your advice for, for people? Because I will be honest in saying I was undiagnosed but I do feel like I definitely suffered postnatal depression and especially with my first because I was so overwhelmed at the – I, had, I was so ill-prepared. I had no idea what I was getting in for. And then because mum wasn't around, I didn't have any guidance to say, hey, this is, you know, what you're in for. And so I wonder about those people that lost that bond initially. How do you build it up again so that you can then, you know, you know move forward in a positive manner to help their mental health? Yeah, so you have, like it's a perfect example, Beck. You have to address the need in yourself first. Like, you know, the, the hardest thing with mental illness is that we kind of put this pressure on us that it's our fault and we should sort it out. We don't feel like that if I've got a peanut allergy. I'm not like this is my fault. I should just toughen up and be able to eat peanuts, you know mm. what I mean? It's a, it's a thing that has happened to us in our body and the way that our mind and physiology processes our experience that has become dysfunctional. And you need to be shown how to process that and how to deal with it. And your 
therapist is doing that, you know, with you as a family, but you need to have that kind of need met before you can then find the path back. Mm -hmm. If you go straight to the path back and don't address like, you know, the peanut allergy or whatever it is, you create a real vulnerability into falling back in it. And what we know in a lot of um, therapeutic pathways, we often talk about like what are the protective factors for this you know, and having people that you can turn to when there's early signs. As adults, like my friends, my partner, they're the most protective factor in my life because if I'm really struggling, I know I can go and tap them on the shoulder and go, I'm completely overwhelmed. You know, I feel like I'm in crisis. I'm really at a tough time and I can't get to being a parent until I address that. Do you know what I mean? If I'm worried about something that's going on with Evie, if if I skip past that then I'm probably going to fall on my face when I try and prepare myself to support Evie with whatever she needs. Mm. The bit is that, yeah, there is no loss of hope. I've met a 17-year-old and their mum yesterday who he's like really disconnected, doesn't care about school, hardly ever attends, you know, and he's got a lot going on. He's got an intellectual disability. He's got all these things going on. Mum lives in a one-bedroom apartment and has three kids in one room and, you know, he's really struggling. Now, Deep down, because I've done this so much, I know the biggest priority for me to do is to re-establish the relationship that he has with his mum. Mm. I see every week kids like that mm. where they've just they've lost that connection and this mum is doing a phenomenal job. Like I couldn't do a day of what she's doing every single day, solo parenting, there's three kids, you know, all that stuff. And But I, I need to find just a tiny sanctuary in their world mm. where he and her just enjoy each other. Mm. And it's not about homework. It's not about anything because we don't, we don't have kids to do that stuff. We mm. do it to enjoy them and support them and scaffold these great childhoods for them. But they're not meant to be perfect. But I just – it's one of the hardest things. And, Beck, you mentioned this before. The modern world has made this so difficult, mm. you know, that how do we do that? How do we – this is the thing. I've got no problem with screens and social media and all that stuff. But – it has crowded our time so much that it's really hard to have time where you're 100% with someone. You do not need to do that all of the time. You just need to have protected sanctuaries where you go every fortnight on a Tuesday, you and I have an hour together where we do something that I really enjoy and you really enjoy and the only purpose of it is to enjoy each other and the thing we're doing. It's not we go and do shopping together and you come and help me do shopping or we get your homework done and I sit with you. It's just celebrating the relationship that you have. And, you know, it's easy to do that with the two-year-old. It's harder to do that with the 15-year-old who's disconnecting. But that's why, you know, prioritise that and just think, you know, that's what I mean about it's cool to read to kids, it's important they eat healthy and all that stuff. None of that crap matters if you don't have a good relationship with them and drop all of that stuff and just prioritise the relationship. It's, yeah. Yeah, I know. to set aside time. Yes. No, it's such good advice. It's such good advice. And to, if if parents want to read further into this or really do need to seek support, are there? like Definitely. Like the biggest concern is that people hear like the two-year wait and they go, oh, my God. And I always feel like the podcast has failed a bit when people are like, can you see my child? I'm like, I'm doing on the podcast the probably the most valuable thing I do in clinic, which is psychoeducation about how to do this stuff. We're never going to run out of topics because there's so many specific things, you know what I mean? And 
we try and share this. I, I still remember doing a self-esteem one about Pretty Woman and everyone's like, how great's Richard Gere? Yeah, you He's used got to re- like Richard and then you think about it and you're like, actually, Richard wasn't that great. No, exactly. So he's got a really poor self-esteem that's completely tied up. He has no relationships and he's all about money. And I remember talking to Nick and I think you can tell in the episode, I just look over halfway through me up on a soapbox, which I've done today as well, just love the sound of my voice. And I look over talking about self-esteem and Nick's crying and he's just like crying next to me and we do one edit. We just do one take, so I'm like scrambling. Going, this is going to be a lot more just me Nick's talking. Weeping. So, <laughs> I'm a, I'm, yeah. you know, I watched Pretty Woman like as an adult, and I don't think I twigged you what don't. that story was actually about when I was a kid. Yeah. And yeah. now, as an adult, I'm like, I'm alarmed. My parents watched totally, that movie. but that's what I mean. We grew up in this this environment where culturally they were like, he's got a sports car, he's worth yeah. heaps of money, and you're like, great, that's what I want to. She ends up to. with him. That's fantastic. <laughs> like, yeah. I'm pretty sure this is disturbing. I'm pretty sure as a teen, Richard Gere was up there with a the childhood crush that I had. Yeah, and I wanted mm. to be pretty woman. What the fuck? Yeah, it's a beautiful yes, ending uh, though. Where the, the the bit that is powerful in Pretty Woman is that she he doesn't save her. You know, like the the trope of like him saving her. If you watch it again, like at the end, she doesn't need to be saved by him and that's a really cool thing. And when you look deeper on it, you're like, she's actually saving him. Mm. Do you know what I mean? She's saying, I don't care about all your material wealth and all those things and I might give this a shot because of the person I think that might be underneath there, Mm. not all this Oh, I'm glad I wanted to be her. <laughs> yeah, yeah, now, now you're claiming yeah, you want to wear those yeah. over the knee boots and that dress. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's amazing. No, but I guess the, there was something else that I want to say. Yeah, so reaching out, Beck, because it's really important. This is a really yes. important thing to close out on is that, yes, you don't have to, you know, you might need to come and see someone like me and there's heaps of amazing people like, not that I'm amazing, but there's heaps of amazing <laughs> professionals are. that do the same role that I do is a more important clarification. <laughs> But the more important and more amazing people are the people in your community, such as the teachers, the GPs, the maternal child health nurses. And they, I learn off them every single day when I get to work with them. And you should feel comfortable tapping those people on the shoulder. Mm. I reckon hairdressers uh, do more therapy in a day oh. and do you know what I mean? Because yeah. like, oh, yeah. you sit there and you're like, I've got this great rough, you know, guy that's an ex-bikey and I just, I love going and getting my hair cut because I'm just like... And I'll go sooner than I'm due because I'm just like, I think I need to chat to this guy. <laughs> <laughs> like, Do you know that's so funny you say that? Literally about, about 10 times this week, I, I, I've had my hair cut, not 10 times, I've had my hair cut and 10 times this week I've spoken to Zoe going, my hairdresser said that. And she told me that we should do it and her advice just was so, and having the time to sit with someone sort of removed from your life as well. Sorry, that's our dog, Boris. Um, sort of uh, removed from your life as well and being able to get their completely bird's-eye view perspective on what's happening. And, and you know, Yeah. Do you know the other powerful thing about it, Beck? It's protected time where you can't do anything else. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? And there's so little of that in our lives now. Yeah. Where I, that's probably the only time where I sit down and just talk to someone for 45 minutes. And I can always tell when he's wrapping up and I'm like, oh, damn it. I haven't, I haven't been <laughs> shave here long it, enough. Shave it. <laughs> so, get the clippers yeah, out. Yeah. Actually, I need it layered more than yeah. this. Like, talk about highlights. You know, just have more time with the guy. But it's, you know, they it's probably amazing. hate all of us. And when they see us climbing, they're like, God, that person sucks no. the life out of me. No, no. but it's, yeah, I, you know, I feel that guilt as well. But the thing is that especially us, those, us that are in this therapy, like I say to families every single day, almost every single family I say, I am not doing this out of kindness or generosity. It is my job. 
if I if you feel safe to be honest with me about what the priority is and if I'm actually helping, that gives us the best chance to succeed together. This old school, you go see the specialist, he knows best, what do I know, is crap and it's outdated and we need to get better than that. So whenever you come and engage with someone, you should feel in control and it's centred around you as the family and the child and find the pathways to people like us. We're trying to improve access. You do not. Most kids do not need to see a specialist like me, but... It's crazy how much I teach people about self-esteem, emotional regulation, even simple stuff like sleep. You should be able to learn about it easier than that. My podcast obviously does it. Raising Children's Network is an awesome resource. Reach out for help, though, within your community, and there will be people. What we're trying to do is create it so that every door is the right door. Mm. You go to someone and say, I'm struggling, they don't go, sorry, I can't help you with that. Because then the chance of you going to someone else and saying, I'm struggling, and you have to do that 10 times to find someone that helps is crazy. Mm. We'll miss too many people. Yeah, that's that's really good advice. And I, I mean, we always finish up with a bit of a hindsight question. Um, some people love it, some people don't. I, some people think, consider it to be regret, but I, I don't see it that way. I feel mm. like it's a healthy reflection on um, what you could have, what you might have told yourself, nurtured to your younger self um, and also a, an ability to be able to help anyone that might be in the moment that you were in and they might be hearing it, they might take it on for their current circumstances. But um, a hindsight question of what would you go back and tell your younger self in your most difficult moments when you were maybe on the edge of falling off track? Yeah, yeah. It's a really... Yeah, and there's been stuff that we haven't talked about that was pretty awful through my childhood and that's kind of where I go straight to. And, you know, simple and I'm stealing it once again off a movie. But, you know, I just tell myself that it's not my fault, you know what I mean? And we we use Google hunting and trauma for that purpose because a lot of people, whether you're a parent or a kid, you feel like it's your fault and you will hold things and not help seek because of that. Because you go, how do I deal with this thing? It's my fault I'm getting bullied. It's my fault my mum is going through such a mental health crisis, all those things. And, yeah, I, yeah, it's not my fault and it, it shouldn't have happened to me. And there's so many kids that I see in clinic that, you know, that girl who lost her dad, it's not her fault. It's not mum's fault. It's not acceptable. They shouldn't have to deal with that and they shouldn't hold it on their own. And I would go back and say that to myself. I'd say it to my mum and all this stuff and it's – yeah, we have to be really careful with adversity because we kind of we, – we almost kind of love a bit of adversity and we're like, if it's adversity that makes me tough. But any success I'd have, I'd give it all up for my mum to meet my kids. You know what I mean? And you'd be the same, Beck. You're just like, yeah, maybe maybe a bit tougher, but I don't I'd, – I'd, I'd pass that toughness back in a heartbeat just for her to, to have one day with her. So we've got to be careful that we don't kind of glorify that trauma and stuff that we've all experienced. So – yeah, without getting too emotional. That's what I say. That's <laughs> yeah, what I say to my younger <laughs> self. Like you shouldn't be holding this, you know. And that's to parents. I'd say that to my mom as well. You shouldn't be holding this. Like you know? that's beautiful. Mm. <laughs> as we again all weep. <laughs> <laughs> no, I feel very, very honoured that you would share that with us, and I feel completely the same. So thank you. And uh, and I guess um, the only other one that I was hoping we could finish off now is as a parent now knowing what you know as a doctor what would you go back and you know change or do from yourself from looking as a doctor perspective and a parent yeah I mean I I I needed probably at periods in my childhood mental health support like my mum definitely did like she you know she was completely beyond her capacity like I um 
yeah, I see lots of kids like this. And yeah, she wasn't able to. Like I, you know, my older brother parented us a lot. He didn't have the skills to do that, you know, and it was beyond, it was completely beyond him. He was a teenager who was left. My mum used to go off and do like these coach tour, you know, around Australia as the thick Irish accent and anyone understood her. <laughs> but, and yeah, we would ask, where's mum? And he'd be like, she's run away with sailors because he was like, just, I can't believe I've been left with these two kids and I'm a teenager. And she was just trying to keep her head above the water financially. But, you know, I think what I realised is that me as a kid, lots of kids out there actually need more help than they're getting. You know, my mum needed more help than she was getting. She was just – no one taught her how to do it. We know how to do it now. Like I I remember I got a scholarship to go overseas for a Churchill Fellowship and the first question on the final panel I got asked with like 16 people in an enormous boardroom was like where they decided they were going to fund it or not was, uh, what are you talking about? There's no evidence about parenting. And I'm like, oh, my God, that's where we're starting here. I've got 20 minutes to prove to these 16 people that there is, and thankfully I got it. But there is so much information we have. we just got to get better at sharing it, and that's why this podcast is an amazing opportunity to try and reach people and say you shouldn't hold this on your own. There are ways to learn more about it. There are ways to reach out and get help. You, you are not alone and you shouldn't feel alone. Thank That's you, brilliant. Uh, and we're going to go out of our way to try and make sure that be, um, beyond this episode that we can collate the, um, resources, mm, um, podcasts and any YouTubes and things that be able to help you if you need do need further support. So we are very, very grateful and what an amazing chat and, you know, your work and your contribution to the community, to the kids is just astounding and something that your mum would be very proud of. Yeah, thanks, Beck. Thanks, Zoe. I've loved it. Thank you, Billy. Thank you for joining us for this week's episode of Not Super Woman. You can find extra resources, links and information on our website, which is notsuper-woman.com. Is that a dash or a hyphen? A dash is a hyphen, Rash. <laughs> Wonderful. <laughs> um, and if you're enjoying what we're bringing, you can follow us on our socials and we're across all podcast platforms. So hit subscribe, guys.